You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, back in 2009, there was a movie starring Ricky Gervais and Jennifer Garner called The Invention of Lying. Now, it is Ricky Gervais, so it's unnecessarily raunchy, actually, and anti-religious. I don't recommend the movie. Um, But the idea behind it is interesting. It's basically our world, but an alternative reality where lying does not exist. No one has ever thought to lie in this world, and so everyone speaks the blunt truth all the time. Everyone just says what they think kind of unfiltered. And whenever anyone says something, it's accepted as true because there is no concept of lying. Whatever is said is accepted as true because no one lies. That is, until Ricky Gervais' character realizes that he can actually say something that's not true and that it works. And because he's not a good person, he does some bad things with it, but he also does some good things, like encouraging people at various points. Now, the the, the movie is a comedy. It's not a deep philosophical work by any means, but the alternate reality it creates is intriguing. A world where words are always taken at face value and believed because there is simply no lying. Imagine what our lives and our world would be like if everyone said what they thought without any filters. That actually sounds pretty scary. Mommy, where do babies come from? Right? Does this dress make me look fat? Do you think I'm good at my job? Do you still love me? I bring this up because the issue that we're talking about here is not actually lying, nor am I encouraging lying, but it's really about something deeper, and that's the power of words. In the world that God has made, words are extremely powerful for good and for bad. In fact, back in the beginning of the Bible, we learned that God created the world through speaking. He says, let there be light. He says, let us make humans in our image. 
It is through speaking that God creates the world. And I love how C.S. Lewis creatively sort of retells this in The Magician's Nephew when he's talking about the creation of Narnia. He has Aslan walking through this void and singing reality into being. It's a beautiful picture. And we also learn in the beginning of the Bible that humans are made in God's image. Now, theologians talk and debate about what all that means, but one thing we can agree upon is that it means that even as God speaks, so too we speak and that our words affect the world. I'm going to come back to explore this power of our words in a moment. But for now, just consider the fact that humans have this amazing ability to speak, which includes the idea of hoping and dreaming and speaking of things that don't exist. We humans can actually create worlds and scenarios and stories and sermons through words that can radically and profoundly affect the world and our individual lives. You've probably heard the old adage that the pen is mightier than the sword, and that means that ideas which are communicated through words, whether it's a vision or a hope or story, are actually more powerful than a mere military. Guns, weapons, military, uh, soldiers, they come and go, but ideas communicated through words, those are what really change the course of the world. And since it's the 4th of July, it's not difficult to think about the founding of the United States and how really that came through words, the Declaration of Independence, later the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's a vision, it's a dream, a way of seeing how people could live together, imperfectly for sure, but how they could live together in a different way. Really, the the founding of the United States was very much about the pamphlets that were written as much as about the war itself. And it's because that is how God has made the world. Words are extremely powerful. Well, today, as we continue in going through this amazing book of Ecclesiastes, and it's been It's had a big impact on me. I know I've talked to a lot of you. This series has been very eye-opening to go through Ecclesiastes. Today, we've come to chapter five, and it's really about the importance of our words and how we use this God-given gift of words, especially in the presence of God. And the ongoing question of the book of Ecclesiastes is, how in the world can we find a meaningful life in the midst of all the futility the frustration, the disappointments that life brings upon us. And we all know that. And I think that's why this book is so powerful. Life feels very hebel. The Hebrew word is vaporous and and fleeting and disappointing. And here now in chapter five, the teacher turns to the issue of words in the presence of others and especially in the presence of God and particularly how the world of words and our use of words can feel very much like hebel. We've all made plans, we've all made promises, we've articulated hopes and dreams that have come to nothing. We've had people promise us things. We've had people paint a picture of a great dream or vision and then have it come to nothing. And there are really few things in life more heart-sickening than that. As the proverb says, hope deferred or hope that is not brought to completion makes the heart sick. And you can see that actually in a couple of our verses in verse 3 and verse 7 of our text today. It says a dream, this idea of you know imagining something comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. 
much dreaming and many words are meaningless. That's that word right there. And what's also amazing about our text for today is that so far in the book of Ecclesiastes, God has not really been the central character. It's mostly kind of approaching life under the sun from the human perspective, and then God usually comes in kind of at the end of a lot of the text. This is the first time where God is really central to the wisdom that is being taught by the teacher of Ecclesiastes. Here in chapter 5, we're going to be given clear instructions about how to think about the power of words in relationship to God, our Creator. And what we're going to be given here are really two aspects of word, wisdom under the sun. The teacher is going to offer us wisdom as it relates to word, two aspects of it, and we're going to see both of them. First, here's this. Wise words come from a proper posture. Wise words come from a proper posture. How do we live wisdom under the sun with our words? We think about our proper posture. Look with me at the text again. It's printed in your bulletin, or we'll put it on the screen. Five, one to three. He says, guard your steps... When you go to the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they, that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes and there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. Now, those are some powerful and strong words. In fact, I knew a woman many years ago, who was actually paralyzed by these verses. She read them, and then she was paralyzed. She was scared to pray to God. She was afraid. She read them in this way that made it sound like she was just so afraid of being foolish, she didn't want to even pray or or seek God. But that's not the point. The point of this is not to make us afraid of approaching God. In fact, the whole Bible shows us that God fully and gladly wants to have a relationship with you. He's not standing up there, arms crossed, looking down, waiting for you to mess up and say something stupid. The story of the Bible is God reaching down from heaven to earth and reaching into our lives, inviting us into a relationship with him. Jesus' incarnation, God the Son becoming human, is the ultimate testimony that God wants to have a relationship with us. Think of how Hebrews 4 describes it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So the teacher of Ecclesiastes is not saying, you better just stay away from God and be afraid when you approach him. That is, unless you and I approach him arrogantly and foolishly. Ecclesiastes is reminding us that when we approach God, we need to remember the proper posture the wisdom that comes from humility. It was right there in verse two. You can see it. It emphasizes that God is in heaven and we are on earth. What that means is, this is the proper posture of the human remembering our earth boundness. The wise person is humble. The wise person is the one whose soul knows the reality of the limits of the human state that we are earthly created beings. We are not the heavenly creator. You can tell 
how wise someone is by how arrogant they are. They may be very intelligent, but true wisdom creates humility because you can tell the, the person who is humble knows their state as a limited human and knows God as in heaven. In fact, you can tell a lot about a person's understanding of God and themselves by just listening to how they talk. So I spend a lot of times, I write a lot in coffee shops, and I usually have headphones in, but occasionally in between or something, I can't help but overhear snippets of other humans' conversations around me. And it is always very interesting to just hear how people talk about religion and politics and all kinds of stuff. And sometimes people are self-aware, but a lot of times it's striking how unself-aware people are and how arrogant and foolish and clueless. And the teacher is telling us that the difference between the person who speaks wisely versus the fool is whether they truly understand their posture in relationship to God of heaven that we are merely humans on earth, and that brings humility when we understand that, when we think about God in heaven. And we're all foolish. We're all foolish to some degree and at many times, and a lot of times that looks like too many words. Did you see that in our text? We often simply say too many words. And the teacher reminds us of what we can call the two ears, one mouth principle, that if you're a parent, you may have said this to your kids, that humans have baked into our physical DNA a daily reminder that we should spend way more time listening than talking. We have two ears and one mouth. Do not be rash with your mouth. Look at the text there in verse two. Let your words be few, verse two. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, verse one. That's true in the presence of others, and it's true in the presence of God. God's not saying, you know, stay away, but he's saying, when you come to me, come with wisdom and humility. What's going on in your heart and mind when you show up on a Sunday morning? Are you mostly thinking about what you're going to say to somebody else? Are you mostly worried about how you're dressed or where you're going to sit or whether you're going to be taken care of? This text is emphasizing that we should show up primarily to listen and to learn. This is the beautiful posture of wisdom in relationship to God, guarding our lip steps, not in fear of him being judgmental or grouchy, but out of love and respect to remember that he is in heaven and we are merely on earth. And that can be hard for us extroverts and verbal processors, any other verbal processors. I figure out what I think by talking about it. But it is very freeing to show up in a relationship with God with arms open, remembering I have two ears and only one mouth. And all of this reminds me of the New Testament letter of James. There's so many interesting connections here. And if you read the letter of James, All throughout, he's talking a lot about the tongue, about our speech. In 119, he says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In 126, we're told, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Anybody feel convicted by that? And James reminds us also that the way to show up in relationship to God with our speech is with this humility. We just sang about the sovereignty of God to show up with this recognition of our earth boundness. Look at what he says in James chapter four. He says, now listen, you who say, 
today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist. Interesting connection with Ecclesiastes. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So you see, what the Bible is saying here is our words matter, and we have to think about our posture, who we are as humans in relationship to the Heavenly Father, and that will shape our wisdom with words. And then the second thing, I said there's two aspects. Here's the second one, that wise people do what they say they're going to do. Wise people do what they say they're going to do. Look at verses four to seven. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. Now, when you read the Bible, there's actually a lot of vows in the Bible. And a vow, what's a vow? A vow is simply when a human addresses God and promises to do something. That's what a vow is. And there are vows that are good. And a lot of times they come out of a human recognizing their desperate situation. For example, back in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, we have a pious and godly woman, Hannah, who's unable to conceive a child. And in desperation, she cries out with tears, asking God to give her a son. And she vows, she promises that if God does give her a son, she will raise this boy to fear the Lord and actually dedicate him to God's service to give him back to the temple. Now that person became the great prophet Samuel and she actually, I'm sure to her great cost, fulfilled her vow. Now note, God is not obligated. God did not promise this to her. God is not obligated to do so, but in, in his sovereignty is bigger than our plans and wisdom, but he did grant her prayer and so the vow that she made is binding if he does, since he did fulfill it. Now, many people, many Jewish people in both the Old and New Testaments also took upon themselves a vow that is called the Nazarite vow, and it's detailed in Numbers chapter 6. And this was a temporary, a short-term vow that someone could choose to take. And during that time, if you took a Nazarite vow, you wouldn't, you agreed to not partake of strong drink, not cut your hair, and avoid contact with dead bodies. Now, maybe that doesn't sound like such a bad deal, right? Not cutting, having to get a haircut or avoiding dead bodies, especially those two. But the point is that these were commitments that some people would take upon themselves consciously so that they could dedicate themselves to the Lord in prayer and service. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Kevin announced that we were inviting people last Monday to partake of a day of prayer and fasting. You didn't have to do that. There was no obligation. But if you did, that was a good way to sort of take a, make a commitment on that day to spend the day in prayer and fasting. That's a good vow. Now, there are also bad and foolish vows that people would take. Think back to Judges chapter 11, where you have this warrior, 
Jephthah, who is facing an army of the the, uh, Amorites, and he says, God, if you give me victory over them, as soon as I get back home, the first thing that comes out of my door, I will sacrifice to you. (laughs) Now, I don't know what he was thinking, because that's just a bad idea overall. That's not something that God uh, would ask of him, especially to make a living sacrifice. No good outcome. But he, sure enough, he is victorious. So when he gets back home, who comes out the door first to greet him but his only child, his young daughter? Here's the point. God doesn't require anyone to make vows, good ones or foolish ones. They're voluntary. God's not petty. He's not demanding in that way. But vows can be good for us to do, and we do this all the time. Sometimes they are rash vows in desperate situations. Sometimes we've done something really stupid, and we're afraid of getting caught. Many a drunk person has bowed down to the porcelain god, as it's sometimes called, right, in a vow. Those are, you know, often foolish vows, but there are also good vows that come out of real situations, like a wedding vow that we promise to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health. If you're married today and your spouse is here, just grab their hand right now. It's a good reminder that you promised to have and to hold each other till this, from this day forward. It's a good vow. That's a good vow. It's beautiful. Military vows to obey your commanding officers, not to be a coward, not to desert. That's a good thing. It's necessary. Last week, I was on a couple of planes, and I, one of my seats was in the exit row, and I had to vow verbally that if the plane crashed, I would help with the exit door. I always think when I do that, I'm willing to say yes. And we had to verbally say yes, yes. I always think if this plane crashes, what good is, that? What good is an exit door going to do? But I'm sure there's some wisdom to it, right? That's fair. Thank you. Maybe that would help. <laughs> a couple of years ago, we asked some people to dedicate to the Deep Church program so that we could buy this building right out. That's a good thing. None of these were required. I can choose to sit on the exit row or not. I can choose to join the military or not. I can choose to get married or not. They're good vows, but if we make these commitments, we need to do them to live wisely and to live in the appropriate fear of God is to do the things we say we're going to do. Why? Why? Because vows are tapping into the amazing power of words. This crucial part of what it means for you and me to be made in God's image. When we speak, we are using our God-created bodies, our tongues and lips and vocal cords, to take something that is inside of us and to put it out into the world. It is an act of creating, which is what is a big part of what it means to be made in God's image. And as I mentioned before, God created the world by speaking. And we mostly know about God by the words he's spoken that we believe are in scripture or written down in Holy Scripture. And it's not an accident that when God finally reveals himself in the ultimate, clearest, perfect way in Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, he is called the Logos or the Word. It's not an accident. And in fact, if you go back to thinking about humans' words, go back to the Garden of Eden, a big part of, of Adam's responsibility was to use words to name things. 
to name plants and animals and the other human, Eve, who becomes his wife. And throughout the biblical story, we see the great significance of words being used to name things and, and things being named to particular place and people and, and times and seasons. You have a lot of the naming of a child that's really significant. Jacob, his, na- his name means supplanter in relationship to his brother Esau, which means Harry, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. Tamar means palm tree, part of her story. Susanna means lily, or the classic that a lot of parents choose, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. If there's anybody named that here, that's awesome. But that's, that's a name that is used to communicate something. Or a lot of times in the Bible, you see the changing of a person's name. Abram means exalted father. God changes his name to Abraham, father of multitude, Jacob, supplanter. His name is changed to Israel, which means wrestles with God. And you have place names that are important as well, Bethel and Lehi and Gethsemane and all these. We also know the power of words, not just in naming things, but in interpersonal relationship. Think of the power of a word of encouragement that someone has given you, especially in a vulnerable moment. I was doing an interview recently about a book and somebody asked me what happened after the first time you preached. And so I had to think back and I remember what happened. That somebody came up to me. I was like 18, 19 years old or something. Somebody came up, I'm sure the sermon was horrible, but somebody came up to me and said, you're a really good speaker. I still remember that 30 years later, right? Just that little word of encouragement. That is the power of, of words. And it goes the other way too. Many of you still have playing in your hearts and minds a word of discouragement. You're not very good at that. You're a disappointment. You're not very pretty. This is the power of words as God has made the world. And here's the point. Words are extremely powerful. So When you and I think about words in relationship to God, we have to really be wise. We have to think about what we're saying to God. Now, it's okay. It's okay to have mountaintop experiences and valley of death moments. I've spent a lot of visits in the hospital over the years of being a pastor and being with people and seeing people at both heights and and depths. And it's part of human life in those moments to, to make vows to live differently. And especially when you're younger, sometimes they're maybe a little overstated, right? I remember several decades ago, when I was speaking in a church and a a young man came up, I guess he'd been impacted by the sermon and he came up with all sincerity and said, I'm going to pray for you every day for the rest of my life. And I thought, even at that time, I thought, that's wonderful. That's great. I'm pretty sure he probably hasn't done that. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm going to get to the new creation and he's going to be there and I'm going to say, oh my goodness, thank you. But probably not. That probably didn't happen, but you know what? It's okay. I mean, this happens. We all do this. It's youthful zeal. It's okay. We all, especially us external verbal processors, we all say more than we should. But this text is reminding us that that's not very wise. We need to follow through on what we've said. Godly people are people of integrity when it comes to their speech. And our culture doesn't reward that. Our culture encourages foolish, rash, 
hot speech, the more provocative, the more viral you'll get. But God is saying, restrain your tongue a little bit. Be wise. Think before you speak. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean you need to say it, especially even in the presence of God. Because you see, when we don't follow through on what we're saying, we're contributing to the hebo. We're contributing to the, to the vanity and the futility of the world. I mean, do you, how do you feel when you don't keep a promise that you've made? How do you feel when someone hasn't kept a promise to you? There's no life there, friends. And it's not too late maybe to fix something that we've promised to do and haven't done. Maybe it's too late to fix the exact situation, but we could at least apologize. And here's one little, there's, this is kind of a big deal. I think it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine, but I'll just say it. You know, when someone shares a concern with you, don't just say, I'll pray for you unless you're really going to do it. Can we just be done with that? Can we be done with saying, I'll pray for you as a way of saying, I hear you and I care for you? If you say you're going to pray for someone, do it. How about this instead? How about just say, if it's, if it's appropriate, hey, can I just pray for you right now? That's a lot more real, and you'll be less likely to get yourself into this foolish situation of saying you're going to do something and not doing it. Or just saying to someone, what I often do as well, is when God brings you to mind, I will certainly pray this for you, right? That's just being a little bit more wise with our words. So the teacher is saying to us today that if you and I want to find meaning in life, we have got to pay attention to our speech Wise people remember our posture before God when speaking, and wise people do their best to do what they say they're going to do. And that's good and helpful, but I don't want to end today. I don't want to conclude today with just these sort of marching orders. I want to kind of put this back into the context of Ecclesiastes and what it's all about. And I want to conclude this morning with a simple invitation. That is that we're all out there in the world trying to figure out life. This is the, the power of the book of Ecclesiastes. It just helps us slow down and recognize, yeah, I am driven by a lot of dreams and imaginations. And a lot of times I talk too much and there is a futility in that. But in all of this, God, again, is not saying, you know, you're horrible in this. He's saying, come, learn wisdom. Learn the wisdom of living in the fear of the Lord, not afraid that he's grouchy, but the reverence and honor to the Lord, remembering that he is in heaven and we are on earth, but that he looks to us in love. He welcomes us. And even in the midst of recognizing your failures with words, know that he is inviting you to repentance and to peace. This morning, early this morning, when I was looking over my notes, I just had a strong sense of conviction about some areas of my life where my words and my life don't fully match. What do you do with that? I'm sure you can all think of areas of your life that as well. What do you do with that? You turn to the Lord and find his forgiveness, ask to be filled with the spirit and renewed. That is God's attitude towards us today. He's inviting us to wisdom in this very personal and very deep way of how we use our words. And so we love to end each service with, on the same note. If you have your communion materials, and if you are following Christ, we invite you to partake in just a moment here. 
to think about this invitation I've just said is that when the word became flesh, God entered the world so that we might have forgiveness of all this brokenness we've spoken of and a million other things we do wrong. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he took wine and he shared it with disciples. And what does he say about these things? He says, this is my body that's given for you for the forgiveness of sins. And that includes vows you've broken, promises you failed on, and ways you, you and I have been foolish before God and others with our words. There is forgiveness available. So I want to invite you. I'm going to pray. Musicians are going to come forward. Just take a moment and just be honest about what's going on in your life. God knows your heart. He knows you better than you know yourself. He looks upon you with love. He's inviting you to return to him today. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.